In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome again this evening. Um, I'm Morgan Reed. I am the priest in charge of the Franconia Springfield Mission. We are a brand new church plant that serves uh, the Franconia, Springfield, Kingstown areas in Northern Virginia. And I just want to, as we have heard God's salvation story, I was struck by one of the prayers that we just prayed. This, this line, let the whole world see and know that things which were cast down are being raised up and things which had grown old are being made new. That is the good news of this night. And it's something in which we all get to enter. And, and it is just a joy. So tonight we have heard this story, this overarching story through several readings about humanity's fallenness and humanity's dysfunction under sin's rule and reign. And we've also heard the story about God's healing and renewing grace towards his people. All of us are familiar with some level of dysfunction, I can imagine. Some of us might here be more acquainted more deeply with uh, certain levels of dysfunction than others. I was reading an article this week in Psychology Today uh, about what it was like to grow up with a mentally ill parent and that wasn't my personal experience, but I've had enough conversations with people that I thought, you know, I should really read a little bit more about what that's like as an adult, having to think back on what that experience would have been like for them. And so as I read this article, uh, you know, maybe you'll resonate with some of these things. If you grew up with a parent that had a mental illness and you didn't realize that until you became an adult. In the article, what they did, it's called Growing Up with a Mentally Ill Parent, Six Core Experiences. And they do exactly what the title says. They share six common experiences that adults have uh, as they grow up in a home with a mentally ill parent. It's not exhaustive, but here are six things that are common. They're going to be different depending on different factors, right? Because sometimes the disorder is different. Uh, the kinds of treatment they receive are different. The time that it's caught is different. Whatever the factor, uh, there, there are lots of different ways that this will impact a child and into adulthood. But here are the six. The first one is, who cares about me? That's what this person says. This adult is plagued by this constant sense of isolation in all of their relationships. They're feeling like they're always being stigmatized, that they're invisible, that they're uncared for. The second person who grows up in a household with a mentally ill parent, uh, they give the label trauma and betrayal. Surviving their childhood was traumatizing. It was abusive. So this person becomes hypervigilant. They become anxious as adults with very little sense of security or very little sense of their own worth. The third is the label transferring the pain. These adults, they took on some level of guilt and self-blame, often accompanied by confusion and shame, the need for secrecy. The fourth one is called staying out of the way and staying safe. This person is marked by adaptation. They're often taking on behaviors and roles to blend in with other people to keep them from harm. It's just the way that they've learned to adapt. That child is always vigilant. They've never developed a true sense of self because they're always trying to think about how to adapt to the needs of others. 
The fifth one is actually a bit healthier. It's called growing myself up. In a healthy response, some adults recognize the experience of having a mentally ill parent, and then they look back on their life and and all their experiences, and they start to ascribe them new meaning. They've moved from self-hatred to self-acceptance. And then the sixth one is labeled transforming the broken childhood. So whether they, it was seeing a functional family for the first time or escaping that unhealthy system to go somewhere else through education or employment, these adults now have hope and they have optimism as they attempt to transcend the historical circumstances that they were in growing up. All of these groups had been bound up at one point in time by an unhealthy, dysfunctional system that didn't allow for their individual flourishing. And yet the good news in all of their circumstances is that someone who grows up with a mentally ill parent does not have to be defined by that parent's illness. Their experiences can be a part of who they are without dictating who they're going to be. And I think that looking at a family system like that can be helpful because it's got a lot of parallels with what it's like for the family of humanity to live under the the cruel dominion of sin. We don't know what it's like to function in a healthy system. In tonight's readings, we heard the arc of God's salvation story, and it began with the goodness of creation. Right? Creation was not inherently flawed. It doesn't need destruction. What it needs is redemption and restoration. We heard about the ways that we've all fallen under sin's rule and reign. Again, creation is not bad. There's nothing that sin did to make creation evil. Our bodies are good. The created order is good. The things around us were made good and beautiful. But what sin did, what sin did was it introduced disorder and chaos in the goodness of creation. It disordered our loves, it disordered our affections, it disordered our communion with God. It destroys our imagination for how to see things that God made good. Uh, it, it destroys how, how we see the goodness of God's created work. So that was our condition. It's the condition of all of humanity before the experience of God's grace that's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we just heard this passage from St. Paul, and he says that in the resurrection of Christ, we are now freed to live in the newness of life. But you and I might be wondering, okay, but then why do I still sin? Why don't I love the things that God loves? Why can't I just get it together? And I think that this passage in the epistle to the Romans, I think what it teaches us, what God would have for us in this passage, is that to know know our freedom, to declare our freedom, I should say, it only takes a brief moment. But it takes a lifetime to explore. Again, it only takes a brief moment to declare the freedom that we have in Jesus. But that freedom takes a lifetime to explore. When we were baptized, we were joined to his death. Jesus' death happened in a world where sin has enveloped everything like a dark cloud. And in some ways, I like to think of it like a vine. 
I recently had just cleared out a bunch of English ivy in our yard, and it was covering this tree outside. And if you've cleared English ivy, it is a mess. And, but the thing is, that tree, that tree is good. That tree is useful. The tree is beautiful to look at. But if I would allow that English ivy to continue to invade year after year after year, it would start to climb that tree and so cover that tree's own foliage that that tree no longer would receive the sunlight that it needs to grow, and eventually that good tree would die. Meanwhile, the ivy is going to keep on spreading. It's going to keep on getting stronger. The ivy can only survive when it's connected to the ground. So the good news is if you tear it up from the ground by the roots and you start to tear it off the tree, it is going to eventually die. Even if you leave a little bit on the tree because you can't get it all, that stuff on the tree is going to die eventually as well. That's for free. Uh, once that ivy gets removed, the tree is free to flourish. And it's going to receive all the nutrients that it needs from the sun above and from the ground below. And it reminds me of the ways that sin just has enmeshed itself with God's good created order. And the, the longer it goes on, the stronger it becomes. Until it spreads throughout everything, creating this landscape that once had the shape of the original topography without the beauty of a healthy landscape. So sin creates this topography of death, if you will, where creation is stifled and where we are left wondering why we don't feel a clear sense of love and purpose and meaning. We can't ultimately flourish in this world that's held captive by sin's power. And so what we do is we create false narratives around things like money, sex, and power that justify and at the same time mask the dysfunction that we have. Relationships, careers, the things we purchase, exercise, leisure, you name it. The things that could be rightly used to see the glory of God become ultimate ends in themselves. Disordered loves, idols. And then we're left wondering why we feel unsatisfied or why we feel bored or meaningless. So Christ being put to death, in some ways, is the culmination of human dysfunction under the reign of sin. The creator of all mankind was handed over to corrupt creatures through injustice, slandered, then tortured and killed under false pretenses. The one who created the mouth for praise heard his creation say, crucify him. The one who created the beauty of the forests and the hills was crucified with timber on Golgotha. The one who had created Eden was placed in a tomb. And like seed that has to fall into the ground and die so that life can spring up from the soil, it was from the tomb that the life giver would emerge. Christ had died to sin, and in his resurrection, he uprooted the vines and he uprooted the weeds that are choking the earth of its vitality. As one poet, uh, the famous poet, John Donne, has, has written, even death will die. Christ's resurrection has put to death the very master that has subjected our humanity to the dysfunction of sin's reign. He's transformed the topography of death into an orchard of life. As St. Paul said in our passage this evening, 
Therefore, we have been buried with him in, by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. We died to sin with Christ and uh, in his death, and we've been raised to walk in the dominion of grace through Jesus' resurrection. The old master, sin cannot lay claim over us any longer. And our very person is now placed in the realm where true human flourishing is actually possible. And so we might be wondering, if this is true, why do we still battle with sin? I mean, there's been no period in the church's history since Christ's resurrection that we can look back on and they seem to be exempt from the battle with sin. And again, I think it's because the truth of this just takes a moment to declare, right? The truth that sin's been defeated, that even death will die, that our old master cannot make claim over us anymore. He has no real authority. It's true. It's true that all those things are real for us in Christ, but it takes a lifetime to explore that new found freedom, and it takes a curiosity about the grace of God. So part of our work of exploring that freedom is looking at ourselves, it's looking at our culture, it's looking at God's creation, and it's asking what reflects God's grace and his ideal in Christ, or what is part of the landscape of death that's still under the ivy? We do that by seeking God in stillness and in silence. We do it by seeking him in his scriptures, in his people, in the tradition of the church. That process takes time, and it's why this process is our life's work. I've been thinking about one area in my life where the old master keeps trying to lay claim on me, and it's very pervasive, I think, in our culture. It's the idea that my individual rights, my freedom, the freedom to do what I want, when I want to, is the highest ideal. I mean, we obviously know the like immortal words, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and those can be baptized in Christian virtue, but without such a baptism in Christian virtue, it can be easy to turn those into self-centered pagan hedonism, right? It's a pursuit of pleasure with an unclear outcome. So for me, that turns into something petty, actually. I was thinking about um, a job that I had applied to a long time ago uh, at a coffee shop. And before I even got the interview, they asked me a test question. And, and it was along the lines of, would you do whatever your supervisor asked you to do, even if you didn't agree with them? And I think I answered perhaps because I knew what I was supposed to say on the test and I wanted the interview. But in my heart, I was really thinking, you know, probably not. And it wasn't because I was thinking that my supervisor was some immoral person. They would ask me to do something immoral. No, I, I, for me, it was actually thinking, you know, what if my manager had misordered a particular coffee and I didn't believe that it was that tasty and then they asked me to sell that stock to some of the shareholders and my customers. Um, and I wasn't willing to do that in my mind. Uh, what that is, is in a lot of ways, it's my unwillingness to put the good of my store or my organization above myself and my own needs. And, and that is a silly example, but it's a true one. Um, but it becomes more serious when we think about a marriage where one spouse thinks of his or her need over what's best for the whole family. 
it becomes more serious when that kind of individual pursuit of pleasure is never satisfied. I mean, we, can, we cannot discover ourselves by pursuing that. Instead, within the church, what we do is we limit our own freedom for the goodness of communal flourishing. It's something God calls us to. And in your particular calling and spheres of influence, what would it mean to mutually submit to one another in Christ? What would it mean to limit your own desire to do whatever you want so that others around you could flourish? Perhaps it means taking a day off. Perhaps it means asking questions about what others in your household need from you. Creating a budget so that you can have more hospitality uh, or shared meals with others. Perhaps it's putting down work at the end of the day so that you spend time with God and those closest to you. Or taking someone who is begging for money out to lunch. Or helping at a shelter. I don't know what it is for each of us, but limiting our freedom for mutual human flourishing pushes against hedonism. And it pushes against a topography of death. It takes a lifetime to recognize sin's pervasive influence and its dysfunction in ourselves, in our households, and in our cultures. And we need to be honest about it. We need to confess it and then share it in grace-filled community with one another. Invite other people into that experience with you. You're going to learn from them just as they're doing the exact same thing as you're doing. And then you're going to show them God's grace in ways that they need to hear it. Grace is our new master. And so we ought to consider ourselves dead to sin. Through the resurrection, we are those who live to God in Christ Jesus. It's this glorious reality. It takes just a brief moment to declare, but it takes a lifetime for us to explore. And so I want to invite us tonight, as we think about what we've heard, to wake up every morning with a curiosity about the grace of God. As we close together, I offer this prayer from an 18th century Anglican writer named Samuel Johnson that I've adapted for us. Let us pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, who desires not the death of a sinner, look down with mercy upon us, depraved with vain imaginations and entangled in long habits of sin. Grant us that grace without which we can neither will nor do what is acceptable to you. Pardon our sins. Remove the impediments that hinder our obedience. Enable us to shake off sloth and to redeem the time misspent in idleness and sin by a diligent application of the days yet remaining to the duties which your providence shall allot us. O God, grant us your Holy Spirit that we may repent and amend our lives. Grant us contrition. Grant us resolution for the sake of Jesus Christ, to whose covenant we now implore admonition, of the benefits of whose death we implore participation. For his sake, have mercy on us, O God. For his sake, O God, pardon and receive us. Amen.